Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. We sing it, but church, we don't, you don't recognize this enough. Soon shall close your earthly mission and soon shall pass your pilgrim days. We don't have long here. We don't have long here. We got to cling to God. Repent of sin and live for him. Let's pray. Lord God eternal, in this hour of worship where you've convinced us that soon shall close our earthly mission and soon shall pass our pilgrim days. Show us now in this hour of worship that all things are shadows and you alone are substance. Assure us that though all around us is shifting, you alone are our sure and steady anchor. And in this hour of the preaching of your word, teach us now that though all things are ignorance, you are wisdom. Convict us in this moment, not so much about the circumstances around us, but about the character of Christ that is to be formed within us. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. We all have things that we want. We all have things that we want. And the question that separates us from the others around us is this. What are you willing to do to get the things that you want? What are you willing to do to get the things that you want? And the question that sometimes separates us from others around us is this. What is your reaction when you can't get the things that you want. Your actions and choices and decisions in life are all driven by what you want. This is how it works. You do what you do because you want what you want. The preaching of the word is always about the, what God has revealed in his word, and yet something amazing happens every time we truly preach the word. And that is God uses the word of God to do this, which doesn't happen nearly enough. God uses the word of God to do this, to explain you to yourself. And the explanation of you to yourself is this. You do what you do. The words you speak, the actions you take, the mean things you do, the nice things you do, the choices, the decisions. You do what you do because you want what you want. James 4 is all about that controlling principle. He says in James chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions of what you want are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, 
Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is talking to people who do what they do because they want what they want. And what they want and what they do because of it is causing fighting and fracturing within the church. We could summarize verses 1 through 3 because they're about coveting and not asking or coveting and asking. But either way, coveting and asking or not asking, not getting, not getting what you want. You desire and you don't get it. James is saying very plainly in verses 1 and 2 and 3, he's saying, hey, have you ever had a chance to say this to someone? He's watching what they're doing, and he's saying, hey, I see what you want, and the method that you're going about to get it will never get you what you want. Have you ever had the chance to come alongside a friend or a family member and explain that to them? The method that you're using is not going to work. It's just like seeing someone who, bam, they get a flat tire on the road and they pull over and as you watch, they have a small bag of nails and a hammer and they are just hammering every one of those nails into that flat tire. And you say the method that you're using is not going to work. That's what James is saying here. If you want true satisfaction... Selfish desire grabbing is never going to get you there. If you want true contentment, a soul that is at peace and content, coveting will never get you there. James is very direct and very blunt about the way that you're going about things is not going to work. And he uses that strong biblical word covet right out of the Ten Commandments there in verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do what you do because you want what you want. And what is revealed is that the things that you do because you want what you want are the things that that spin off into sins and even relationship fracturing issues in your lives. Coveting always has companions. I wouldn't call them friends, because coveting is a uniquely unfriendly and relationship-fracturing kind of sin. But coveting has these companions, these uh, co-conspirators that run along with it. And the companions of coveting are always fighting and envy. Envy, of course, because self-love makes us covet, and I want that, and if I see that she has it, oh, then I'm envious and fighting. Because when we covet and we don't get it, then we're willing to fight to get it. And for some of you, that fighting is very obvious because you are a upfront, you're going to make noise and fight almost violently. And I love you anyway. But for others of you, you have just as much of a fighting spirit, but the people around you don't hear it because it's within. That's kind of how he uses the word murder 
there in, uh, what is that, in verse 2. He's not saying you're actually murdering each other, but there's this cold, calculating hatred inside of you. And you're almost squeaky clean enough not to say it out loud, but you are murdering in your spirit. This covetous wanting, he says in verse 2, does something to our prayer life. Because immediately he says, you don't have because you don't ask, and then you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. This is his point. Covetous wanting punctures the lungs of your prayer life. So you you can't draw in any breath in prayer. You can't just lay things out to the Lord in prayer because the coveting just collapses your lungs. He says you don't have because you don't ask. And we get that one, don't we? After all, if you want something shady, you're going to ask God for it? You, you, you don't ask because you feel like, well, that's kind of a shady thing and I don't, I don't think I should talk to God about it. There's a 2,000-year-old story that the rabbis tell about a Jewish man who has an unlit torch and he goes to the temple at midnight to pray. And he takes his unlit torch to the temple to pray. And he says, oh God, as I light this torch and go to my work, would you prosper my work? And he's there at midnight lighting the torch to walk out because his work is breaking and entering and stealing in the little village. And he's brazen enough to ask God to help him. We know you don't do that. You don't ask God's help for breaking and entering. You don't ask your AA sponsor to pick you up a six-pack of Miller Lite. You don't do that. You don't ask your English teacher the easiest way to find the Sparks notes so you don't actually have to read the novel. You don't ask your current boyfriend to help you navigate this new online dating app that you're just trying to figure out on your phone. You know you don't do that. (laughs) Of course we know we don't do that. Those things are obvious. But this is, this is where James comes down, and this is why this is good preaching material. Because in the church, we all know sort of the obvious answers of what we're supposed to do. But today, in this moment, the Spirit of God says to you, you have been trying to get God to help you with your worldly, selfish desires, and it will never work. God explains you to yourself in this text. So he says you don't have because you don't ask. And then he says you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We do what we do because we want what we want. And prayer is asking God for the things that we want. But what about when we ask God and we don't get the things that we want? Does that puncture our prayer life so that then we become bitter And we say, well, prayer doesn't work. It's alarming how easily we say that. And perhaps this isn't James' main point, but I think it's a legitimate, a very legitimate and instructive sidebar to his point. Have you ever stopped to say, God, you didn't give me what I asked for. Hey, God, thank you. I'm so glad you didn't give me 
what I asked for? Have you ever turned around and actually become the kind of, the kind of sort of self-distrusting, abandoning my life to God kind of Christian who's able to say, God, thank you for not answering my prayer the way I wanted it answered? God denies our desires. God actually loves to deny our desires, not because God doesn't love us, but because God loves us. And God knows that sometimes our desires would destroy us. And so he doesn't grant that for which we ask. It's a blessing to be stopped from the things that would have harmed you. It's actually a curse to be given over to your own selfish desires, is it not? I'm not the only member of this church who fasts and prays, and I mean that literally, I fast and pray for the people I love who do not know Jesus Christ yet. And one of the things I fast and pray for them is, oh God, do not give them over to the desires of their own mind and heart. That's, that's the most horrific judgment that can happen this side of hell. There's not a worse judgment in this life than, be given, than being given over to your own depraved desires. And so there's wisdom in laying your desires out to God and then saying, but God, you, you give, you take away, but you do it. There's a very precious verse in Hosea chapter 2 where God talks about a hedge, a thick hedge of thorns. It's a heart-rending verse. He's, he says to Israel, I love you, and I want to be your faithful husband, and you want to commit adultery and go chase after other lovers. And God says, I'm going to put a thick hedge of thorns around you so you cannot carry out your adulterous intentions. This is God's love withholding from us what would damage us. Sometimes we ask God for something and he doesn't give it because that thing is bad. But what about when we ask God for something good, right? We, what we're asking him for is something good, but he doesn't give it to us yet. What do you do when you can't have what you want yet? Well, can you even thank God for that? Why does God withhold good blessings from us sometimes? Well, who am I to say why God does what he does? He does it for a lot of reasons that I don't comprehend, but I have figured out a couple over the years. Maybe God's withholding a blessing from you because you are not yet the you who could properly receive that blessing. And so God's timing is better than yours. In our prayer lives, we need to quit treating God like a short order fast food cook, like we can get mad at him that the fries weren't hot in three minutes. Did you know that God has a plan for your life that lasts for about the next bazillion years? And who are you to be upset and impatient with God that he didn't do it on your time frame? God is in the long-term business of character development. And he'll give you what he gives you in the timing that's best for your character. So the opposite of coveting 
is a, is a commitment to God's character that says, the Lord gives or the Lord withholds. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Actually, the opposite to this striving kind of coveting is found in verses 13 to 17 that we'll get to in a couple of weeks where he says, well, you think you're going to go to such and such a place and do such and such a thing, but you need to wait and rest in the providence of God. from coveting and praying, if that has already sort of carved and and, uh, convicted, I got bad news. It only gets worse in verses four and five. So prepare for the knife. It cuts deep today. He actually says in verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James uses the term adultery like the way he uses the term murder in verse 2. He's not talking to people who are actually murdering each other. And he's not here confronting the sin of sexual infidelity in marriage, which is adultery. He's using that earthly, physical sin as a stand-in for infidelity, disloyalty to God. The Lord who redeemed me, the Savior who wed himself to me, now I'm friending the world and turning my back on him, cheating on him, so to speak. There are about 38 places in the Old Testament where adultery is used in this way. And because I didn't want to keep you here until 2 p.m., I read all 38 of them, and I picked one for you to turn to, just one. It's in Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Uh, It's okay if you don't know where Ezekiel is. God loves you anyway. there's There's these fat prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. So if you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah, just keep going a little bit, past Lamentations, you get to Ezekiel chapter 16. And I'm just going to read Ezekiel 16. Sometimes when a a preacher says, I'm just going to read this text, it's almost like that's bad and it would be better if I preached or taught on this text. But when I say I'm going to read this text, I mean that superlatively, like that's far better than me teaching on this text because the the poetic images that Ezekiel uses are so tactile. You can smell them. You can see them. You can feel them. And it just lands with such weight if you let the words carry the weight that the Spirit of God put in them through the prophet of God. So God's talking to Israel And in verses 4 and 5 and 6, he compares Israel to like a, like almost a newborn baby or an abused and neglected young girl who's found naked in a field. And he says in verse 6, when I passed by you, verse 6, I saw you wallowing in your blood and I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live. 
and I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment and your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And so I spread the corner of my garment over you and I covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil and I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather and I wrapped you in fine linen and I covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck and a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown upon your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But... You trusted in your beauty, and so you played the whore because of your renown, and your la you lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourselves colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I myself had given you, and you made for yourselves images with them, and you played the whore. And you took of your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them, also my bread that I gave you. Oh, how I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set this before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. You took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and all your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. And oh, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built for yourself a vaunted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and you made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore... I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied yet. You played the whore with them and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with this, you were not satisfied. Oh, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaunted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square, yet 
you were not like a prostitute because you even scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come into you from every side with all of your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, but you gave payment while no payment was given you. Therefore, you were different. the way God describes the infidelity and the sin of his beloved covenant people. This is how James uses the term adulterers. In James chapter four and verse four, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Spiritual adultery is friendship with the world. What is friendship with the world? Well, we've got to answer that one correctly. The Bible uses the term world in different ways. If you know the street that I live on and if you somehow did a, did a survey on me and you went to the people that live around my house and you knocked on their door and you say, you know that guy Spencer that lives in that house? Is he friendly to you and the other people on the street? If they said yes... Would I be failing this? Like I'm a friend of the world? What does it mean? What exactly does it mean to be a friend of the world? The Bible uses the term world like John 3.16 for all the people in the world that God loves. But the Bible also uses the term world like is used in 1 John 2. Brendan mentioned earlier in the service, like 1 John 2 to refer to a, to a system that is built on pride and coveting rather than on God and his glory. A system that's built on the gratification of lustful desires. We do what we do because we want what we want. And if our wants are the same as the people in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, then we are loving and friends with the world. Perhaps my favorite definition of worldliness is by the theologian David Wells. He describes worldliness as that system of values in any given age, which has at its center our fallen human perspective. So it displaces God and his truth from the world and puts us at the center. And here's the key. So worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. So worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong, and for that reason, it makes what is wrong seem natural and right. That's what worldliness does. And to be an adulterer against God is to be a friend of the world. What does worldliness look like? How can I tell if that guy is worldly or if that woman is worldly? Well, as soon as we make a list of behaviors, that list is in some ways indexed to our zip code and our time uh, as far as what year it is in the world, right? Worldliness is, a, worldliness is an attitude that's displayed in certain behaviors. But as soon as the church makes a list of behaviors that are worldly, that's indexed to sort of where we are. There's an old story about this in a, in a kind of a, that explains 
how it's so indexed to where we live. The stories of uh, two women. One is, let's say she's a Southern. She's from the South in America. She's from Texas. And uh, she's sitting at a table talking. She's a Christian, and she's sitting at a table talking about how terribly, horribly worldly it is to drink a glass of wine with your dinner. This is so worldly. Can't believe it. Can't believe Christians would do that. At the table next to her is a woman from, a Christian woman from Europe. Maybe she's from Italy. She's from France. And she has a glass of rosé with her dinner. She doesn't get drunk because she's a Christian. But that's, they just always have one. The 14-year-olds have a small glass of wine. But she is sipping her rosé and just going off about how awful and unholy and worldly it is that ladies wear pants to church in Texas because it's indexed to kind of where you live and what the cultural mores are where, where you live. That being said, this doesn't allow us to just blow up a beach ball and pop it up in the air and say, well, it's up to everyone to determine for themselves what's worldly and what's not. No. Worldliness is an objective, defined category in the scriptures of God. And every person everywhere is accountable to exactly what God has said about worldliness. What has he said about worldliness here? Verse 2, coveting is always worldly. Verse 3, selfish passion driving me to get what I want no matter what is always worldly. Verse 6, pride is always worldly. Verse 7, a refusal to submit to God is always worldly. Verse 9, a, a refusal to mourn and repent over my sin is always worldly. Verses 13 through 17, presuming that I control the future and God doesn't is always worldly. You see, it's not that we can say that our choices are meaningless based on where we live. It is always the case that what, it, what worldliness looks like, it is indexed to your zip code and where you live. So let me say this. All, since all of you live around here and are associated with this church, worldliness means that that here where you live, everyone else who doesn't have Christ as the Lord of their life, they should not be able to look at your life and say, they're exactly like we are. They want the same things. They cut the same corners. They do all the same things. We should be distinctly different because our loyalty is to God, not to the world. And notice how he says it in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice that it's your chosen behavior. James 4 says, when we have problems in our lives, we can't point around and say, it's my circumstances fault. We can't point at someone else and say it's their fault. It's we do what we do because we want what we want. And he, that's why he uses the, the very emphatic term. He makes himself a friend of the world and he wishes to be a friend of the world. I mean, we are in the world, so you could almost take it like a fish floating down a stream. Everything in the world is going against God, so we're just floating along that way. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying it's a choice. 
And you have to declare your loyalty to God and not to the world. Back to the example of adultery. If a man is unfaithful to his wedding vows and he commits adultery against his wife, he adds, he adds painful iniquity to painful iniquity if what he says after the fact is, well, I didn't mean to, it just happened. Uh, neutrality is an impossibility in the loyalty of a covenant. In fact, the ferocious loyalty of covenant love is what makes love, love. If you were to remove the loyalty from love, then you would remove love from love. Remove loyalty from love, and what is love? It isn't love, it's occasional attraction. You look good to me now because I want you, but when you don't look good to me, I don't want you anymore. Fiercely loyal love is what love is. That's God's love to us, and that's the love that God calls us to have back to him. So to turn away from friendship with the world and to have this fierce loyalty to God and God alone. And so then in verse 5, he uses that, that idea of jealousy and loyalty. And he says, do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 5 is a, it's one of the trickiest verses to interpret in, in James because the grammar could mean um, that this is the human spirit that is wrongly uh, having a zealous desire for the world that's not my preferred interpretation. I would interpret this to mean the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And when, when God regenerates us, he makes the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And that Spirit that's given to us at regeneration is now wanting us to show that same loyalty to God that God has shown to us. It means the Holy Spirit who's imparted to dwell upon us in, in us at conversion wants our undivided loyalty. And that's what he's saying there. But did you notice how he set it up? Verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says this? What a question. James started this whole rigmarole with this awesome question in verse 1. What is the cause? And he went past all our subterfuge to drive at it. And here he asks another question. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says what it says? That's admittedly an obvious question. It's a Sunday school question. Do you want to go to hell? We all know the right answer. Do you enjoy torturing little puppies? We all know the right answer. It's obvious. So he says in verse 5, do you suppose that God put these verses in the Bible for no reason? And we say, well, of course not. But this is where, this is where James lowers the boom. And he says, you can say the right answer. But a professed faith that isn't worked out in doing what you do because you want what you want, then it shows that your faith is empty. We all know that these verses have a purpose, but we deny them when we disobey them. God doesn't say this for no purpose. When he gives us these verses, he wants us to have this ferociously loyal love to him where we gladly obey. 
Our love to God is love to God because of our loyalty. Remove the loyalty, remove the love. So James gives three scriptural allusions here. He doesn't exactly quote a scripture except in the last one about pride. In the first two, he sort of makes a, makes a mosaic of several passages that lead to this thing about the jealousy of the Spirit of God and secondly about giving more grace. And then finally, he quotes one for the third one that God's opposed to the proud. But having covered the, the scriptural allusion in verse 5, let's say let's leave verse the, the one about pride for next week or the week after, and let's just make sure we don't miss verse 6. But he gives more grace. God yearns for us jealously, and God sees that we commit adultery, and God yearns for us loyally, and God sees that we try to get away. And when we do, what happens? God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God gives more grace. Now, grace does not sort of sweep us into heaven with some kind of magic dust. If you look at this paragraph, depending how you divide it up, I find 10, 10 imperatives. You have to do this, you have to do this, and you have to do that. Grace is not opposed to human effort. Grace evacuates human earning. We don't earn our salvation. It's the gift of God. But the grace that operates in us now enables us to fulfill these commands that God has given to us. So we guard the gospel here. Our salvation is not obtained by keeping these imperative commands, but our salvation is expressed in the real life that we live as God's grace enables us to keep these commands. God yearns for us jealously. God guides and governs us, and yet he sees that we are unfaithful and we sway off on our own way. And God's response to that is this. He gives more grace. What a, what a comfort. One commentator said something about this verse that was astonishing. It's so astonishing, it almost feels like, what, can you really say that? But... I wasn't able to shake it, so I'm including it in the sermon. This commentator, his comment on verse 6, God gives more grace, is simply this. Think about this. Even if we were to turn to God and say, God, what grace I have received from you so far is less than enough. God would not turn away from us, but God would instead reply, okay, you can have more grace, more grace. God gives more grace. In the very paragraph where James is cutting so deep into our sin and our failure is where he says God gives more grace, more grace grace. How awesome is God? I'm sure that I, there's more than one or two or three ways that I wasn't a godly dad when my kids were still under the roof. There's a legendary story that they tell of me that proves that I was not a very godly dad, I suppose, depending how you look at it. This ever happened with your kids? We went to McDonald's. I got them, didn't get them the Happy Meal because it was a little too expensive that day. I got them a burger fries. 
They didn't say thank you for the burger. They didn't say thank you for the fries. They just whined and complained that they didn't get the Coke and the toy. So I said, okay, give me the burger. <laughs> give me the fries. We're done here. Even if we were to say to God, what the grace you've given me isn't enough, God would give more grace. Church, at the end of the day, when we confess that we've committed adultery and we confess that we've coveted and we've blown it, what do we have to cling to but this? There is more grace in Christ Jesus than there is sin in me. There is more loyal, covenant-keeping love in the God of my salvation than there is cheating infidelity in me. There is more strong deliverance in the mighty name of Jesus than there is wandering weakness in me. And there is more forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ than there is frailty and failure in you. So come to Christ for more grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hear your children as they pray. In church, I'd ask you to take a moment to pray. Say, oh God, how I need your grace. Oh Jesus, how I need your mercy. Confess your coveting. Confess your worldliness. And say, oh God, I need your grace to show me my sin, to lead me to sweep it out, confess it, and turn from it, and then to enable me to walk in a new way. Heavenly Father, hear your children as they pray, and in Jesus Christ, have mercy upon us. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.